0: Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. Really,
1: in verses 12 through 17 really described uh, uh, his description is there in his glorified state and one of them was of a uh, out of his mouth comes forth a two-edged sword and obviously it's not a, a real sword that's coming out of his mouth but it is the word of God which is, it, which is like a sword. it, it is powerful. How can I keep
0: the Hi everyone, and thank you for joining us on Truth in Christ Radio. Today we learn about the church in Pergamos. In Revelation 1.16, John observed Jesus and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now Jesus showed this two-edged sword to the Christians in Pergamos. This reminds us of the passage in Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus will confront this church with his word, and they will feel the sharp edges. Now let's join Pastor Rob with today's lesson.
1: Let's open to Revelation chapter 2. The last two weeks we've been looking at the churches of Revelation, Ephesus, we looked at that uh, two weeks ago, Smyrna last week, this morning we're going to look at Pergamum, and then there's Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and these seven churches all had really good things um, that, that were happening in them that were good, and there were also things in these churches that the Lord wanted to correct. And as we look at these churches, uh, th- there's there's a couple of different ways we can look at this. Uh, certainly, we're going to be looking at the, the local churches and how it applies to us today. Uh, some have used these seven churches to kind of outline the, the history of the church, which it seems to do that very interestingly. Uh, but we will just look at the local connotation and how it applies to us. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the church of Pergamos, and that's verses 12 through 17 in Revelation chapter 2. So let's look at uh, just a few things about this, uh, this, this church, some facts about Pergamos. Uh, Pergamos was a wealthy city just like Ephesus and just like Smyrna the, from last week. It was a capital city. Uh, In the pre Roman days, before it was taken over by the Romans in 133 BC, it was a northernmost church in West Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And in 29 BC, Pergamum became one of the first, the the first city to actually build a temple for the Roman emperor or Caesar. And it was the, the most Glorious of the temples, you know, if I can use that word. And it was also the home of the temples of Athena, Asclepius, Dionysus, and Zeus. And this city, Pergamus, was famous for its 200,000 volume library that it had. And it was known for its manufacturing of parchment called Pergamum, which was a new reading material really that was made of animal skins. And so, just a little bit of background on, on Pergamum, but let's go ahead and read verses 12 through 17. It says, Unto the angel in Pergamus write, These things says he who has the sharp two edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth." And he ends the letter to the church at Pergamos. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So we we read this letter, and we see some commendations, and we also see some uh, shortcomings in this church. And in every fellowship, there are things like that. Uh, in every fellowship, there are strong points and there are things that, um, that need some help. And, and certainly in our fellowship, there are things that the Lord is doing really well. And, and, and we have a, a certain number of things that, that I believe we're doing really well. But I, I believe also there are things that we could be doing better. There's attitudes in our own heart, the way we uh, respond to each other. All these things, they, they, they mean something. And, and God knows ultimately what those things are. He's the perfect judge, not me, not anybody else, but He, he knows what we need. And, and as we go along in our fellowship, we, we discern what those things are, and the Lord speaks to us. And He speaks to us through His Word, and a lot of times I'm not even aware of the things that He's doing as I'm sharing, because a lot of times I just feel like He, he you know, uh, it kind of takes on a life of its own as we get going. I have my plans, but God directs my steps. Right, And hopefully that's true always because we don't need to hear from me. We need to hear from the Lord. We need to hear uh, of the Lord. So let's go back and look at verse 12 here. Again, a letter that Jesus wrote to this church. And so it's it's free from any kind of bias if you think of that. And to me, in a world where everyone is on each other's case about everything, um, it's it's interesting that the Lord is the perfect judge. So, as we read these letters, we understand that God knows the hearts. He knows our hearts. He knows the hearts of His people. So, we can take it as truth. And so, let's get right into it. So, it says in verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And if you remember, as we were looking at the other two letters prior to this, the angel is really the, the messenger or even the pastor of that local church. So Jesus is speaking to the man who is the pastor of this church in Pergamos. And Pergamum, uh, the, the name itself means height or elevation, and perhaps it got that name because of the mountains that are in the, the the town or around the city. They are high in elevation, and in fact, this is where they put all of those temples that we're going to be looking at in a few minutes Um, And so he goes on and he says, I am these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And we know that Jesus in chapter 1, really in verses uh, 12 through 17, really described, uh, uh, his description is there in his glorified state. And one of them was of a, uh, out of his mouth comes forth a two-edged sword. And obviously it's not a, a real sword that's coming out of his mouth but it is the Word of God which is it, which is like a sword. It, it is powerful. And in fact, uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and notice, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And that's one of the jobs, really, if you think of of the Word of God as we read it, it really does, it discerns us. And as we read it, remember, this is God's Word. It's not just a novel that you can read once and throw away or put in a garage sale and sell for 10 cents. This is His Word. It's a living Word. I can read the same passage today and read it tomorrow, and even though the context is the same, God can be using, uh, by His Spirit, things in my life to make me aware of certain things and, and, and cause me to consider things that, that are, are kind of maybe not explicitly in the text before us. He has a way of doing that as we read his word. So the sword uh, in, in the time in the Romans, the sword was a symbol of capital punishment. No one would go against Rome, for if they did, Rome wielded its authority over the people and over the Roman Empire, as you know. And if, if necessary, they would use the sword to do that. But we know that Jesus ultimately has control and authority over all things. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it says that all things were created by him and for him were they created. And so all things, and even uh, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all they that dwell therein, it all belongs to him. But a double-edged sword also has the ability to cut both ways, doesn't it? It has the ability to curse and to bless. You know, If you think of it, uh, a sword can break the chains off of somebody's life, maybe an addiction, maybe some kind of problem that they're having, some issue in their life, maybe it's uh, unforgiveness uh, from the past of something that your father or stepmother did to you. Um, It could be something that a friend did to you, a best friend. It could have been a church, perhaps, that uh, the, the members of the church really hurt you some way. Somebody in the church hurt you. And the Lord has a way of taking that sword and breaking those chains and setting you free. And He also has the ability to use that other side of that sword to bring correction. And certainly He doesn't do that for His people, but for those who have rejected Christ... Uh, ultimately, they will face that sword of judgment and it's not necessarily a physical sword, but it is a a point of contention it, it is something uh, it, it is a judgment that God will wield himself to those who have rejected him ultimately at the end and we know that that's true but I want you to to know something too about the the Bible says that the Word of God is a double edged sword, and if you remember in Matthew's gospel in chapter 4 in the first 11 verses it reads for us that it was a time when Jesus was tempted of Satan after John the Baptist had baptized him Jesus obviously didn't need to be baptized but he did that as a means to identify with man and to show us the example but he himself didn't need to be baptized but remember that he did and immediately following it says that the spirit of God drove him into the wilderness into the Judean foothills right there on the uh, east side of the Mount of Olives, we were just there a few weeks ago and we drove through the Judean foothills and that is the area and it's a really interesting, very interesting area and I am sure that it has always been as stark as it is now and this is the place where Jesus was tempted of Satan. And you remember what happened when the, when you know Jesus, having been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, it says that the devil came and tempted him and said, Well, if you, since you are the Son of God, then cause this stone to become bread. And Jesus said to him, and he quoted from Deuteronomy. In fact, all of Jesus' uh, retorts against Satan were from Deuteronomy, believe it or not. Uh, the law uh, in Deuteronomy. And, and he, he retorted back and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of uh, the Lord's mouth. And, and finally... Uh, there was a second temptation, and then the third temptation, where uh, the Satan brought him up to the pinnacle of the temple, which is a southwest corner of the temple, and he says, "Throw yourself down, because if you're the son of God, the angels will take charge over you and lift you up, lest you dash your foot, lest you dash your foot against a stone." And, and it was kind of interesting because the devil is now using the Psalms. As, as a means to communicate to the Word of God, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, you know, get thee behind me, Satan. You should only trust in the Lord. And, and, and I, I forget the passage uh, verbatim, but you know what I'm talking about. So let me ask a question. Who do you use? You know, as we talk about this double-edged sword and the, the Word of God being a, a two-edged sword, what do you use to combat the enemy? Do you use your own ingenuity? Do you use your own knowledge? Do you use your knowledge of history or science? You better use the Word of God because that's what Jesus did. Uh, the Bible says that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And it's, a, it's, a, it's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. And how do you overcome something that's spiritual that you can't see? Well, you have to fight it in a spiritual way you know it'd be so much easier if the things that were invisible somehow manifested themselves we'd still be in a in a in a sore spot uh but but we can't see and only god can see and so when we pray we pray against those things that we know are happening because the things that we see going around us and the things that are going on in the world i believe are all they're all the result of things that are going on spiritually does that make any sense i hope it does because there's always a spiritual battle going on over truth. We see it being going on in our country right now, the, the battle for truth. And one of, the first, one of the first casualties in any war is truth. And so we know that we are in a battle for truth. And the Bible is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. So how important is the truth? It's everything. It's everything. So let's go on in verse 13 here. And Jesus said to this church, He says, I know your works. In other words, I know your toil and the things that you have labored. I know your works and where you dwell and where Satan's throne is. And so one of the things about this church and this area that the church was living in is uh, in Pergamum there were there were many mountains uh, around uh, the city. And Satan's seat, where, where it says right here, Jesus says, And I know where Satan's throne is. Above the city, on a hill, there was a throne-like altar to Zeus. And this throne-like altar was also called Zeus the Savior. Uh, they would actually have a, a, a plaque on this, and they would call it Zeus the Savior. So you can imagine any Christian living at that time would, would be offended and uh, not excited about these pagan altars, because Zeus, if you recall, is the Romans, a Romans god and he was like the the father of it all right and so but this was the most famous pagan altar in the world and Jesus was very much aware of that but we know at this place though at this place in Pergamum on the high hills and the mountains around there they also worshiped the god of Asclepius uh which who was was the god of healing and medicine and his symbol was a serpent entwined around a pole and you'll see some of these uh pictures Symbols in our in our culture where Asclepius is used, the serpent uh surrounding the pole. Um and so we can see that and Asclepius again was uh in, in his temple there in Pergamum, the worshippers would actually lay on the ground on this temple while non poisonous snakes would crawl all over them, and that is how they worshipped. And, and they claimed that they would be healed from sickness and disease by going through this. And it was really kind of a twisted, perverse uh, religion, as we know. One author said this about Pergamum. So there was, Satan's throne was just a uh, a name for this place because of their idolatry, because of all the different temples that were erected to these false gods. And one author said, In Pergamus... It was no problem to serve other gods just as long as one served Caesar. One could say Zeus is Lord as long as he also said that Caesar is Lord. No problem. Or one could say Apollos is Lord and Caesar is Lord. And so as long as Caesar was glorified and deified, it was okay to worship those other gods as well. And what a horrible thing this was. And that's why the the Christians of that time, would call that Satan's seat or Satan's throne. And and Jesus, of course, knew this very much. He knew the the cause of it. He knew the root of it. He knew what was behind the whole thing. So in verse 13, again, he he says, I know where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast. Notice his encouragement to them. He says, you're holding fast to my name and you didn't deny my faith. Whose faith is it? Is it my faith? You know, I often talk about my faith. Where did my faith come from? It came from the Lord. Your faith came from the Lord. It's His faith, and He gives it to us, doesn't He? So, He says, And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, who was a faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You know, this word Antipas, some believe that Antipas may have been the pastor of this church, and it's very possible. We know that he was martyred. And, uh, and as the pastor of that church, he certainly wouldn't want to cave in and certainly wouldn't be willing to cave in to all of the negative, uh, horrible things that were going on there in the temples. It was pagan idolatry, and of course, uh, the, the Word of God has a lot to say with that. That's one of the reasons why the children of Israel got into so much trouble early in the, in the Old Testament and throughout their um, tenure in the desert and even beyond as they were in the, in the land of Israel. Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers, he had this to say, he says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and Antipas was not willing to cave in to the demands of Rome, and so as a result of that, it cost him his life, and I'm sure that if Tertullian could do it again, he would do the same thing, because right now he's in the presence of the Lord, and um, what could be greater than that, you know, the Man has the ability to put this body to death, but then what happens afterward? Man, man can't, uh, all man can do is kill the body. And that's why you see people like um, Martin Luther and you see ple- people uh, like um, uh, Polycarp who in their lives they were burned at the stake and they were willing to go through it because they know that it would just be a short time of pain but then an eternity and see, we often forget about eternity. We only think about the here and now. And so it's always important for us to think of that. It's been said that a wise Christian knows which battles are worth fighting, and a faithful Christian will do so. You know, we have to know what our battles are. Where are we willing to compromise, or, or maybe compromise is not the best word, but in our life, what areas are we willing to give a little bit of room to, and what areas in our life are we absolutely unwilling to give into, and that's And that's really important. You know, what's really important to you? What's really important to you? What are you willing to fight for? Are you willing to fight for the truth? Are you willing to stand up to the gods of today, the gods of abortion and the gods of homosexuality and immorality, the gods of sexual perversion and lust and greed and pride? Are you willing to stand up for truth and righteousness? And certainly we're not talking about guns and ammo. Because again, Jesus said uh, in uh, through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter ten, verse four, it says, "For the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being put and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled." You know, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Because if you're not, you can get ready. And how do you get ready? You, you get into the Word of God. You give your heart to Christ. You, you worship the Lord. And you grow in Him. And that's how you get ready. There's really no easy way around it. Are you willing? Are you willing to fight for the truth? And again, in Zechariah 4, verse 6, one of my favorite verses, it says, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. We cannot accomplish anything uh, as a church in physical means alone. Um, most of what we do is spiritual. The, the words that we speak are spiritual. It's a spiritual book, but it does have its witness in the physical because we see the results of a life that's given over to Christ. We see peace. We see love. We see joy. We see peace, uh, compassion. We see all of these things. And I love what Jeremiah said, you know, because this church was being persecuted just like the other churches. And you and I in this country, we haven't faced persecution in, in a great way yet. But I love what Jeremiah said, or what the Lord said to Jeremiah, actually. He said to him, and this is right before the Babylonians came in to bring captive the, the Judah and Benjamin and Jerusalem, He said this in Jeremiah 12, verse 5. God's speaking to Jeremiah. He says, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? Because Nebuchadnezzar and his armies had horses, they had chariots, they had a lot of armament. And God is saying to Jeremiah, If you have run with the footmen, and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in a land of peace, in which you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the flood plain?
0: I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of Revelation.